Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? Uh, it's a going. It's going, yeah. Going? Yep. Surviving, not yeah. thriving? Thriving a little bit. Surviving a little bit. You know, it depends good. on the moment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's all good things. Nice. Yeah, yeah things are things are going good. Uh, we have been getting lots of new followers on our Instagram, so that's really yeah. fun. Yeah. Today in particular, it just kind of blew up, so we're super excited about that. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. It's And strangers. And st- yeah, right. strangers. And CrimeCon. They followed us. followed us. I know. And we are excited. Yeah, girl. <laughs> <laughs> so follow us if you don't. And if you know other people that would like us, you should tell them to follow us too. Because Send them our way. We're pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> that was very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that much fun. fun. Totally. <laughs> this is your first book episode. Are Yay. you excited? I am so excited. This one was... I thought, oh, this one would be easy to cover. Like, this is, yeah, no. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in here. That's what happens when you start diving into books. It's like, oh, shit, where did all this info come from? I don't remember yeah. this the first time. And then, yeah. Right? Who thought this was a good idea? I don't know. <laughs> I keep wondering that myself. But, hey, it's pretty fun anyways. <laughs> I don't know. Podcast record days are my favorite days. So, yeah. besides actual podcast release days, because those yeah. days are my new favorite day. But. Thursdays are the best days, but podcast recording days, they're a whole nother level. Yeah, it's, we just have fun. It's good. Yeah. Pretty much every time before we record, we laugh until we cry. <laughs> and then we have to get our yes. composure so we can actually record. So it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and I think that everybody should have people that they can laugh till they cry with. So it's, yes. yeah, it's good. Especially when they're talking about murder. <laughs> Because that's just a totally different friendship. <laughs> it is such a different friendship, and I love it. It makes yeah. me so happy. Me too. It warms my heart in the weirdest way. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we're creeps. Excellent. Anyways. Well. Can we get started? Yeah. I mean, I have a glass in my hand. Do you? I do. Great. Excellent. All right, friends. Grab your glass and get cozy. Let's book club it up. Ding, ding. <laughs> so. Today, we're covering Billy Jensen's Chase Darkness with me. I chose this book on a recommendation from my aunt, actually. Um, she'd heard a piece on CBC about it and called my mom and was like, Michelle needs to read this book. So thank you, Auntie Clara, for the book suggestion. Yeah. It was great. You were right. I did need to read it. Um, mm-hmm. What did you think about it when I first suggested it? Yeah. Well, honestly, I was, I was very surprised. I didn't know too much about Billy Jensen before uh, reading the book. I knew that he had the podcast with Paul Holtz, which I thought was pretty cool. And I know that he helped um, finish Michelle McNamara's book that we'll talk a little bit more about, um, the All Be Gone in the Dark book. Uh, So I knew him from that, but actually I didn't have the best first impression to him because it was when the uh, Ted Bundy series were coming out on Netflix, including the, the shockingly evil incredibly vile, whatever it is, you know what I'm talking about. And I saw with the one with Zac Efron, of course, and we were deep into the Ted Bundy stage at that time. And we were here for it. We wanted to watch all of it. We, yeah, we were deep diving and Billy Jensen was not a fan. He was not about, you know, giving Ted Bundy all this crazy attention and all that kind of stuff, which I understand, but I was like, Billy, you're cramping my style here. So at first I was, 
I wasn't too thrilled about him. I'm like, come on, man. It's true crime. We love it. It's fine. Um, but then after reading this book, I can really understand why he was upset that people were, you know, fangirling over such a terrible person. I, I totally understand yeah. now. After getting I, to I know get him and what he dedicates his life to, I totally understand where he's coming from. So totally changed yeah. my perspective. Um, I don't think I, pr- I would have picked this book not because I don't think, you know, he would have good perspective or anything. It just didn't really pop up on my radar, but I am so glad that we covered it because I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was fantastic. It, yeah, blew my expectations out of the water. So thank you, Michelle, for, for picking this one. Yeah. I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And yeah, I just, (laughs) and I loved how you said that, like, you didn't know Billy before, because I feel like, I feel like we know him. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. (laughs) We get great perspective so, on his life and just what he's all about. So that was great. Yeah. Like a dive into his mind a bit. Cause it's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about him. Billy Jensen is a true crime journalist that focuses primarily on unsolved cases. He was friends with Michelle McNamara. And if you don't know who she is, I promise you will, because we will cover her book and that will yeah. be amazing. It will be uh, so much, but we will do it because it's incredible. Yeah. And uh, he helped to complete her New York Times bestseller, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, after her sudden and unexpected passing. He has helped to solve a number of cases that he writes about. And according to his website, law enforcement now reach out to him to help in cases that have been stumped, using him as a consulting detective. He is a senior producer and investigator on the Warner Brothers show Crime Watch Daily. And he co-hosts two podcasts, The First Degree and Jensen and Holes, The Murder Squad. Oh, I didn't know he was a producer on Crime Watch Daily, but I just started yeah. watching it, and it's fantastic. Well, <laughs> I really like it. Really, a part of it. I'm not surprised. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> yeah. The introduction of the book was written by Karen Kilgariff from my favorite murder podcast, yeah. and which, fun fact, was my very first introduction into podcasts. Thank you for that, Tara. No I have problem. to assume that the general population that is listening to us is listening to my favorite murder, or at least knows who they are. But if you aren't currently a murderino, go have a listen. Totally. And it would yep. be wild if you came to our podcast first and then found them. But right. I feel cool. like that would be really strange. But it, and if that happens, hey, please tell me. I want to know. It might happen. That yeah. would be great. <laughs> yeah. And um, I struggled a bit with how best to write this as it talks a lot about his personal life. Mm-hmm. And his backstories. And with all of these super interesting cases intertwined in his story. So I'm going to try to focus on the crimes, crime stories going forward, but there will be definite mentions about him and what he does throughout. The book itself, just get into it, read all about him and learn about his dad and learn about his wife yeah. and his kids and all of those things. But yeah, we'll talk about the crime stuff because this is a crime yeah. podcast. It right? makes solving of these crimes just so much better <laughs> yeah, to know, know what he like went through and all about his life and what he did to solve these crimes. It's worth it. Just read the book. Yeah. Yeah, the sacrifices that he made to do everything is just really incredible. Yeah. So we'll jump right into the prologue. Billy's writing immediately captured me. He describes a scene from security footage. Clean, a clean-cut guy, good-looking man, walks into a 7-Eleven at 2 a.m., buys some chips, and leaves. Big, ominous dude in a green hoodie tries to come into the 7-Eleven, but is kicked out. Green hoodie guy approaches man with chips outside and gets in his face. Dude with chips walks away, but is followed by the green hoodie guy. Chips guy now tries to run away, but he's caught by the green hoodie guy, is punched in the face, and knocked out in the middle of a crosswalk. 
He is then robbed, while unconscious, by two other guys that run out of an alley. Green Hoodie Guy and his skeezy friends all take off, leaving this poor guy KO'd in the middle of the road. And then, two taxis turn onto the road where the guy lays. The first taxi misses him, but the second, oh, the second one, drives right over him, crushing his chest and killing him. Mm. That really puts an image in your head. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah it how, did, how did you feel after reading the prologue? It hurt my heart. <laughs> it's just, it was so, so senseless. There's just no reason for that crime to happen. And it's just heartbreaking. Did you watch the video? I didn't. I didn't, I didn't want to actually see it. I watched it you, and it. I figured you would. <laughs> I did. And oh my God, it, it's, it's hard. It is hard. It's yeah. There's a lot of people around and we'll probably talk more about this later on. I believe I can yes. save that for later on, but yes, yes, reading that it hurt my heart and you just hope that somebody that was around to see that happen would be able to help with the investigation and help exactly. identify the, the, the nonsense killer that just punched the guy for apparently no reason. So yeah. Yeah. Cause he was a dick. No um, kidding. Do you remember in the first, our first episode, the one about the suitcase? How, yeah. <laughs> how you describe how it like paints a, a picture in your head and you were in your granny's basement playing hide and seek. Yes. So this story put a picture in my head. Ooh. Um, I grew up, like I said in previous episodes, on the north side of Edmonton. And mm-hmm. not very far from my house was 7-Eleven. It's busy intersection. And that's where I pictured this. Yeah. I know this took place in Chicago, but I pictured it in my neighborhood. Yeah. I, could see him lying in the street next to the library actually yeah. it was so well described that I was like yeah that's like that's my home right? yeah but yeah so freaky that your brain just goes to those places. it just puts that picture together <laughs> and then it's even more freaky when you actually are able to pull it apart a little bit and then actually recognize where your brain is getting all that information from yeah I love that yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah so I promise we'll learn more about the story of the man in the green hoodie but for right now Let's find out about a body in a barrel. Yes, let's. <laughs> in New York in 1999, Billy took a call from an editor at the New York Times Metro News, getting him to go digging into a breaking news story about a body that was found by a family who just moved into a new house. This was crazy. Story is this. A family that had just moved into a house in Syoset, Long Island, And while they were cleaning up some old junk from a crawl space onto the living room, they came across a heavy barrel. The new owner contacted the seller and asked him to remove the barrel because he's like, this ain't my problem. Yeah. Get rid of it. Get this shit out Um, of here. (laughs) And the movers then moved the barrel out to the curb. But the garbage man wouldn't take it because they didn't know if it contained toxic waste. So naturally, the seller and his real estate agent took a screwdriver (laughs) and opened the barrel. Oh, no. And they saw a shoe. And a human hand. Oh, that's so good. The police were called at this point. Thank goodness. Mm, Um, Good idea. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for calling the police. Mm -hmm. Probably would have called the police at the shoe. But (laughs) inside the barrel was a well-preserved young woman, a faux fur coat, an address book, and pellets of dye used on fake flowers. So our friend Billy, armed with this information, started calling previous owners of the house. One didn't answer, 
One was currently speaking to the cops, and the third, the original owner of the house, who now lived in Florida, answered. Mm, Florida, man. Howard, <laughs> Sorry. Florida man. Sorry. <laughs> <right>? Florida man. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Howard Elkins answered some questions about the house, and he had no idea who the woman could be. And after that phone call, it was revealed that the woman in the barrel was pregnant. Mm. It just got amped up to a double homicide. Six days after the piece ran in the Times, Howard Elkins entered his friend's garage, sat down in their SUV, and shot himself in the head. Ugh. What? What a a jerk. (laughs) I'm sorry. He went went into his friend's garage, sat in their SUV, and then shot himself in the head. What the hell, dude? Just going to make this somebody else's problem. Right? Shitty friend. Why don't blow your head off in your own damn car? Right? No kidding. And <laughs> second, I'm pretty sure we can get to put the lady in the barrel. Yeah, I think that uh, has guilty written all over it. <laughs> exactly. Apparently, five days after the Times article ran, one day before Howard Elkins' suicide, detectives had tracked him down and asked him about the flower pellets, the house, and if he ever had an affair. Interestingly, he answered that yes, he had had an affair, but he couldn't remember her name or what she looked like. Mm, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'm dumb. <laughs> like, if you have an affair, you remember what she looks like. Yeah. You remember her name. Right. If she had, like, if you asked her name, I guess, whatever. Yep. Uh, he also didn't have an answer as to why his name was in the address book. He, at this point, refused to allow a DNA sample to be taken to be matched to the fetus. Gee, I wonder why. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) After Howard chose to end his life, all the details came to light. The 55-gallon drum had been manufactured in Linden, New Jersey, between March 1963 to October 1972. Writing on the drum showed that it had been delivered to the synthetic flower company Melrose Plastics, a company that Howard Elkin had been part owner. The address book revealed an alien registration green card number that belonged to an El Salvadorian, sorry, El, El Salvadorian, is that how I say it? I don't know. <laughs> El Salvadorian immigrant named Reina Angelica Moroccan, and she worked at Melrose Plastics in 1969. The address book also had a phone number for a Kathy Andrade. Detectives tracked down this Kathy, and she told them that, yes, her friend Reina was having an affair with her boss, Howard Elkin. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> According to Kathy, Raina had called her one day and told her that she was scared. She had told Elkins' wife about the affair, and apparently Howard was angry. That was the last time she ever heard from Raina. Her body was sent back to El Salvador, but detectives weren't done. They continued to examine the address book, and the crime lab was able to decipher the faded words that read, Don't be mad. I told the truth. Ooh, Interesting. Yeah. I tried to find details out about Harold's wife, Ruth, but the internet kind of let me down on this one. Mm. There isn't really much information about her, so I don't know if she stayed with Harold after she found out about the affair or if she was around when the body was found and Harold ended his life. I would love to know her feelings after everything that came up. No kidding. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So you knew about this case. I had never heard about this one. Yeah. I don't remember. I definitely heard about it on a podcast. I'm not sure which one it was. I want to say it was my favorite murder, but I'm not 100% certain about it. But yeah, I totally knew the case. 
when you started talking, telling me the first time about it before I had started reading this book, I knew exactly what you were talking about. But what I didn't know is that Billy Jensen had anything to do with it at all. Right. So, yeah. The guy that originally contacted Howard. Yeah. He was the one that made the phone call and then the guy went and killed himself. So I thought that right? was very interesting. So cool, right? Yeah. So moving on to our next case that comes up in the book. On the one-year anniversary of 9-11, so 2002, mm. Billy wrote an article for the New Island Ear about Henrik Siwak, a 46-year-old Polish man who left his wife and two children in Poland in search of the American dream. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, he was downtown Manhattan looking for work when the planes ran into the World Trade Center. (laughs) Getting really sad. (laughs) I know. After witnessing the chaos, he walked home and called his wife. I'm okay, he told her. They discussed the other events that also happened that day as he'd only knew about the towers. And then they said goodbye. This was her last conversation with her husband. He was found six miles from the World Trade Center, laying in the street with a bullet in his chest. (laughs) Right? A quote from Billy Jensen. There were 2,997 people murdered in New York City on September 11th. The public and the authorities know who murdered 2,996 of them. Whoa. (laughs) Damn. Goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. So this poor man just shot in the street. That's so sad. Isn't it? Yeah. Investigation revealed after speaking to his wife and son in Poland, he had received a call from an employment agency to meet a man named Adam in Brooklyn about a job cleaning stores. Henrik had told the agency that as he had never met the man, that he would be wearing his camel army jacket and matching pants, which was his favorite outfit. Cute. His landlady gave him directions to where he needed to go, and he had to walk as all public transit was suspended. Poor Henrik got turned around and was likely wandering around lost for a while. Adam waited around for him for about an hour when he finally gave up on him. He had been seen by a few people in the neighborhood where he was found, carrying a bag and a piece of paper like he was looking for an address. One woman recalled seeing him at one point being followed by three men, and then she heard the shots and turned and saw people scatter and saw Henrik on the ground, still with the paper in his hand. He still had his wallet with cash in it on his body when police arrived. Billy wrote his article in hopes of finding out who killed Henrik Siwak the night of 9-11, but to this day the case remains unsolved. Mm. Ugh. This is why I hate unsolved cases, because I now just, I need to know. I know. Kill that poor man. Right? Why? What was the motivation? Was it fear? Was it a hate crime because of what he was wearing? Did they think he was a terrorist? Or were they just horrible humans that didn't like this guy walking around their neighborhood? I think they were just horrible humans. Like, <laughs> this right? story made me so sad, honestly. I know. So sad. Again, it just painted such a clear picture in my mind of this, just this poor old man being turned around and lost in such a huge city on the day that was panic filled in it like the in world an, stopped because of 9-11 yeah just the most unimaginable circumstances happened that day all public transit is shut down and this poor old man is just looking for help and he ends yeah. up getting shot for no reason oh and, and he had 70 dollars in his wallet like they could have robbed him but they didn't so why it doesn't make sense and 
so I, frustrating. And I know an old Polish man named Henrik. So I really have that image in my head of this really poor old man. Just like, it's just so, so clear. And yeah, right? it's yeah really sad. It's really sad. Awesome. This, this was, I mean, it's a very sad story, but it's a very interesting perspective that Billy took on 9-11. I know. I, lo- I loved it because everybody else is doing like the, on the one-year anniversary, everybody else is doing like the firefighter tributes and like mm-hmm. the people who died in the towers. And he's like, I'm focusing on the one person who nobody yeah. knows what happened to him. Yeah. Which I thought was really sweet too. That was, yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about Michelle McNamara right now, but I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail about her. Yeah. Because um, there's a lot of detail oh, in the yeah. book about Billy's personal relationship with her, how they met, how they bounced cases off of each other. But um, I'm not going to dive into her a lot, strictly because we're going to be covering her book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And mm-hmm. I would rather let her have a whole episode. Yeah, totally. But it's important that I mention that her life's work was to find the identity of the man she had dubbed the Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. And Billy Jensen, our favorite author of the day, was a sounding board for her, and she was for him. And eventually, Billy helped to finish her book after she died. There's a lot, so much detail about their relationships and the things that they talked about. And like I said, I just mm-hmm. want to give her all of like her whole episode. So Yeah, I'm I mean, she dedicated her-, her whole life to this one case. So I think we can dedicate an episode or two to her. I think yeah, she deserves and, that. <laughs> and I feel like when we go to do that episode, we'll be pulling open Chase Darkness with me just to bring up things that Billy oh, yeah. Jensen brought up, for sure. So moving on to one of the next cases in here, mm-hmm. um, more bodies in barrels. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a theme. <laughs> what a theme, yeah. Party theme. <laughs> in November of 1985, two brothers were out hunting in the New Hampshire woods when they came across a 55-gallon barrel on its side against a tree and falling out of the barrel was a plastic bag and there was a small human foot sticking out of the bag. Oh, no. What do you think he would have done if you encountered something like that while out hunting? Uh, I, I can't really say. I mean, most people usually say that they think they found a mannequin. <laughs> I feel like my mind immediately would be like, nope, it's, it's a body. It's definitely a it's body. A yep. <laughs> yep. Like, freak it out yeah would i would i open and look further into it maybe <laughs> could i just call the cops right away yeah probably should yeah, you should. i don't know i don't i don't know and yeah. i won't contaminate evidence okay <laughs> i don't know that that would be that would be shocking i can't imagine <laughs> yeah you're just out like hunting for deer you yep. find a human foot yep okay <laughs> not okay <laughs> So, obviously, they called the authorities, and police arrived shortly after. No clothes or jewelry were found with the bones, but it was determined to be the remains of a little girl between the ages of 5 to 11 years old and a woman 23 to 33 years old. Forensics determined that they had been there between six months to three years. Yeah. It doesn't bode well for finding a killer. No, everything is very, very vague. You don't have very yeah. good timelines on anything, which obviously is not surprising. No. And this is one year before DNA was used. There were no missing persons that matched their descriptions, and their dental records did not reveal who they were, which is interesting because in the Green River case, we were asking about dental records, and yeah. I guess they don't always work. Yeah, fair enough. That makes yeah. sense. But you know, this was in 1985, which was when some of the, well, 
Green River was mostly 1982 to 1984, but still definitely things were happening in that case around that time as well. So interesting. Exactly. They were buried together in Allenstown and their headstone read, here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl aged 8 to 10. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. Oh, that's sad. It's the most nondescript (laughs) headstone ever. Right? Yeah. 15 years later, in 2000, the case was handed over to State Police Sergeant John Cody. He was familiar with the case and the location where the body was found, but he wanted to go back to the area just to familiarize himself, just for reference. While he was walking back to the road, he spotted a few 55-gallon drums. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He opened the lid, and inside he found the remains of two little girls, ages 1 to 3 and 2 to 4. At first, detectives were hesitant to say that the bodies from 1985 were connected to the bodies found in 2000, but after it was determined that these tiny humans had the same injuries as the first victims, blunt force trauma to the back of the skull, the original bodies were exhumed. DNA then revealed that one of the new victims was related to the two original victims. Oh my god. What? (laughs) (laughs) So, this is all we know about the Allenstown 4 at this point in the book, but I promise We'll find out more soon. I want to know everything. I've already read the book, but I'm having the same like initial reaction <laughs> when I first right? it's like read I about this. Like, I need to know I now. I need to know everything. Tell me. <laughs> and I, I was going to write it all out in one, and then I was like, no, like this is what caught me in this book was that it was so like, Keep I need to back. know, and it's part of the urgency in him finding out these things, right? Yes. So Yeah, fair. Uh, we're going to go back and talk about the man in the green hoodie, though. Mm-hmm. So remember that piece of shit? The guy from the prologue, the guy who punched out the innocent man, his shitty friends robbed him when they left him to die on the street. Now let's talk about him some more, hey? Yeah, let's do it. The man who met his end in the street was named Marcus Gaines. And this is going to get a little confusing because there's two Marcuses Mm -hmm. in this story, but I'll try to be clear. He had just finished a shift bartending at a local bar and then stopped at the 7-Eleven for a snack on his way home. Billy Jensen, after watching the surveillance footage and the very recent loss of his friend Michelle McNamara, decided that he was going to find the guy in the green hoodie. He first contacted Marcus's sister, then the Chicago detectives on the case. Chicago PD never got back to Billy after he tried to make contact several times, but the sister gave him the go-ahead to try and track down the man who caused her brother to die. He created a Facebook ad campaign with a targeted audience within the ages of 18 to 65 within a two-mile radius of where Marcus was killed. He posted the video along with a description asking for anyone who knows the man in the green hoodie to message and to share it to Chicago friends. He then distributed the video to Twitter and to a sports blogger that he knew who had lots of followers and connections in Chicago. The video started being shared a lot, and little by little, he started to gain a bit more information. And people who were on the street that night even sent their own pictures and videos of the man in the green hoodie, one that showed him without the hood on, and he was a black man with a heavy brow and a widow's peak, which led Billy then to sift through mugshots, over 3,000 mugshots. Oh, God. Narrowing down the pile to three pictures. That's impressive. Right? With one man standing out more than the other two in the three pictures. A man named Marcus Moore. This was the other Marcus. Mm -hmm. Billy flew to Chicago and went to the place where Marcus died and waited until after dark and started asking people about the man in the green hoodie. He carried his picture in his pocket. He talked to a valet that was working at a steakhouse, and the valet told him 
Oh, that's Big Dummy. His real name is Marcus. I love that. That was just, <laughs> right? Big Dummy. That's just the first one. Multiple people identified the man in the green hoodie as Marcus Moore, but he hadn't been seen around lately. He created a dossier with all the information he had gathered and delivered it to the Chicago Police Department. After this, Billy just had to go back home and wait and see if all his work made something happen. He watched Marcus's Facebook page, and when he changed his location, Billy dug into it, figured out where he actually was, and gave the information to the CPD. He was calling or emailing the detectives at least once a week for nine months. Good. Nine months since he initiated his Facebook ad, Marcus Moore was finally arrested for aggravated assault. Yes, that's awesome. Can you imagine what kind of adrenaline high he must have had? He was so invested financially and emotionally into tracking down the man in the green hoodie, and it actually paid off. Totally. That would be absolutely incredible. Can't even imagine. <laughs> no, I, I needed to find out who did that in the prologue, and I'm so happy that he did. Yeah. <laughs> and so this was just the beginning of so, so many social media ad campaigns to crowdsource for information about unsolved crimes. Like so many. And I'm just going to highlight a few of the big ones that were in the book because I could talk for days about all of the cases. Yes. And lots of them are heartbreaking because lots of them never, never have an end because he doesn't find out who does, who done it. Who done it. <laughs> who done it. Oh, so frustrating. I know. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is a man named Timothy Krosky in Virginia, who was found in his driveway with gunshot wounds. But the only clue who did it was a 15-second color video of a lanky, dreadlocked man walking through an intersection, and then it showed him running from the direction he came. Bailey created an ad campaign focusing on the tall man's walk, boosted and targeted the post as before, and eventually the public delivered a name, Darius Copeland. Again, he created a dossier and sent it to the Virginia police. He just had to wait and see if anything came of his work. Eventually, Darius Copeland was arrested and Billy was notified. The next one is White Boy Q. The 20-year-old was outside of a party on homecoming weekend when himself and a friend were shot. His friend survived, but he did not. Again, there was a video surveillance. You cannot see their faces, but the woman was a head turner and she was the focus of Billy's ad campaign. And if I remember correctly, I don't think that they caught them. Don't remember, but I don't think so. Um, Teddy Grasset, a 30-year-old fashion designer from L.A., traveled to Nashville, hoping to open a store there. He was walking with a friend behind the Country Music Hall of Fame when a car pulled up behind them, which, for whatever reason, caused them to run. The people in the vehicle get out and run after them, and off-camera, Teddy is shot and killed. You can't make out the killer's faces, but their car was a Chevy Impala with a sunroof and spoiler and a neon-lighted plate frame that made the license plate unreadable. The focus of this ad was the car. This led them to Andy Francisco Nunez and his girlfriend, Danelia V. Cruz. They were arrested, but revealed that there was a third person in the car. So another ad was created to find Joseph Santillian. Likely from the huge social media presence of his face being plastered everywhere, Joseph turned himself in. He was the shooter. The next one is Juan Vidal, he was 25, had been shot and killed in attempted robbery at a jack-in-the-box in El Monte, California. A man approaches the counter and barrel rolls over it, landing behind the register. He is holding a pistol, wearing a baseball cap and a Halloween mask. He demanded money, and Juan did not resist, but he was still shot in the chest, and the gunman took off without any money. The ad focused mostly on the mask, which Billy discovered was a stand-the-man mask, 
The first ad asked for anyone who knew of a skinny-legged athletic guy aged 14 to 30 who owned that mask. The second ad focused on this getaway vehicle. And with these, they were able to identify a suspect. 20-year-old Louis Herrera was arrested for the murder of Juan Vidal. So yeah. those are just a few. Like, there is so many in there. Oh, Billy is just such an amazing person for taking on these cases that are ones that are normally kind of brushed off. You know, they're, right. they're very vague. There's no intent behind them. Like, they all seem just very random. They're just random person kills another random person in the street, and that's the end of it. So for him to take right. these cases and pursue them as he did is it's very incredible, and he's a good person. He's like a hero, and he he puts so much of his heart into each case. Like, you could just tell oh, that yeah. each one meant something to him, and yeah, it's just really impressive. Yeah. So this one is long, and it gets twisty. Oh, good. So, uh, Hold on to your butts. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is probably my favorite case in the book, and I the twists and turns and how everything connects. Just I love oh, it so much. So. I want to hear about it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a story about a man named Gordon Jensen. He moved into a trailer park in Scotts Valley, California, with his daughter Lisa in 1986. To some neighbors, he said that Lisa's mom was killed in a car accident. And to others, he said she was killed in a robbery gone wrong. Kind of fishy, right? Kind of weird. Yep. But he was all about that. I'm, I'm a single dad trying to make ends meet. The daughter about to start school, you know, mm-hmm. trying to do the good thing. Um, he found work fixing VCRs and other electronics. He couldn't afford a trailer, so him and Lisa slept side by side in the back of his truck, covered with a camper shell that was open on one end. Lisa had no toys, which just makes me sad. Yeah, that is sad. And so one day when he was chatting with one of the residents of the trailer park, a woman named Catherine Decker, he revealed how much he was struggling to give Lisa the life she deserved. And the neighbor told him about her daughter who was unsuccessfully trying to get pregnant. A plan was created for little Lisa to go and stay with Decker's daughter for three weeks while Gordon had to go out of town. If they liked her and it felt right, they could start adoption proceedings after the three-week trial. Problem was, Gordon Jensen never returned to the trailer park. Of course he didn't. <laughs> that's a bad idea. <laughs> right? Anybody that's just going to like leave his kid with another family just like on a whim, just like, oh yeah, take her, try her out, give it a test run. Like it's probably not going to go well. <laughs> no. So Lisa's placed in foster care because of course now like the authorities had to be involved and the adoption place could not move forward. A warrant was issued for Jensen for child desertion. But he was also being charged with child molestation after an exam of Lisa. Oh. Oh, right? Yeah. Police were able to get a set of fingerprints off of a VCR that he had repaired. And when they ran them through the system, they belonged to a man named Curtis Mayo Kimball, who had previously been arrested in Orange County in 1985 for drunk driving and child endangerment. Okay. So two names, same fingerprints. Okay. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Investigators searched for two years for Gordon or Kimball or whoever you want to call him when he was arrested for drunk driving in L.A. Once arrested, he knew nothing about Lisa and denied any knowledge of the charges against him. Okay. (laughs) Right? A year later, he was paroled and surprise, surprise, he disappeared again. Of course he did. Who is this dude? <laughs> Why are right? you like this? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Lisa was placed with an amazing family and grew up to have a family of her own. Twelve years later, a 43-year-old chemist named 
Yunsen Jun needed her roof fixed, and she was referred to a local handyman, Larry Vanner. While Larry fixed her roof, romance sparked, and eventually, much to her friends and family's dismay, they were married in a Star Trek-themed wedding in her friend's backyard. Oh, no. I love that detail. I'm visibly cringing. Right? <laughs> My face started doing weird things as you said that. Right? <laughs> Uh, they promise to love each other and live long and prosper. And all oh, that. yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that is 100% what they said, too. <laughs> I'm sure they did, actually. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, they never actually got a marriage license or filled out any of the appropriate records for the state, but nonetheless, they were living as husband and wife. Sure. Less than a year after they were married, Jen never showed to meet a friend for lunch and then started missing a whole bunch of other social events. Her friends were concerned, and her one friend, Renee Rose, who was supposed to be going on a trip with Jen, started to get really worried after a strange call from her friend on May 31st. She hadn't heard from her again after that. Rose called Vanner, and he told her that Yunsen's mom was sick, and she'd flown to Virginia to be with her family. Vanner refused to give Rose any contact information for her and got belligerent with her. Rose, good old Rose, Mm -hmm. did not give up. She kept calling and Vanner kept giving her excuses why her friend could not come to the phone. Oh, she got back from Virginia, but then she went right to Oregon to work on their cabin. Oh, she didn't want to talk to anyone. She's in a fragile state. Oh, he's headed out of town to go see her. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh uh-huh. In August, she contacted the police. She had last spoken to Jen on May 31st. Detectives visited Vanner, and he agreed to go with them to answer some questions. He was chatty with the detectives on the ride there, and he was willing, willingly gave his fingerprints at this point. Um, sorry, at this point, they were using live scan fingerprinting and would have his records and rap sheet within a couple of hours. So they just kept him talking while he waited. He was pleasant and respectful until the detective commented about his accent, just trying to keep him talking, and asked where he grew up. He changed so fast in how he was talking to the detective. He leaned close and growled, that's none of your goddamn business. Good reaction. Yep. Not suspicious. Not suspicious at all. Then he went right back to being the nice guy. Detectives asked about Jen, but his answers were evasive, and he referred to her in the past tense. Red flag. (laughs) Right? So many red flags here. Yep. Um, When his prints came back, they matched Curtis Mayo Kimball. So he had a warrant out for his arrest for failure to meet with his parole officer after abandoning a child at a trailer park. This is enough for detectives to arrest him with and get a search warrant for his house. None of Jen's possessions were in the house. Over the fence was a dried up dead kitten. And in the garage was a collection of pottery made by Jen. And beyond that, there was a 250 pound mountain of kitty litter piled next to the water heater. Uh, gross and weird. Right? Yeah. The detective moved a bit of the kitty litter and she found a human foot. Everybody finds a foot. Man, these feet are just popping up everywhere. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> the forensic team was called in, and of course they discovered the body of Yunsen Jen. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Police said the kitty litter masked the smell of her decaying body. Larry Vanner was arrested for murder. He pled guilty as he didn't want to go through a trial, and he was given 15 to life. So now the man is in jail, which is good. Yes, good. His fingerprints are connected to three different names, 
And now detectives began to wonder if Lisa, the little girl he abandoned, was even his daughter at all. In August of 2003, Detective Roxanne Grunheide, the lead on the case since he was picked up for questioning, requested that Lisa's DNA be tested and compared to Banner's. Surprise! It was not a match. You are not, not the father. <laughs> not related at all. Damn, that's not good. <laughs> they approached him in prison about Lisa, and he denied any knowledge of her again. Vanner died in prison seven years later at 57 years old. His secrets, however, were about to be revealed. Lisa took it upon herself to find out more about herself. She worked with a genetic genealogist from dnaadoption.com, and she entered Lisa's DNA into a public online DNA database and found a cousin in New Hampshire. The cousin led to Lisa's grandfather, who filled in some of the blanks. Lisa's name was actually Dawn. Her mother's name was Denise Bowden, but he had no idea where her mother was. In 1981, Denise was living in Manchester, New Hampshire. She attended Thanksgiving in November with her family and introduced them to her new boyfriend, Bob Evans. A week later, her family went to visit at her apartment and found it empty. Bob, Denise, and her six-month-old daughter were never seen again. Yeah, lots of twists um, and turns here. <laughs> All kinds so of twisties. Turns. It's hard I to love like, it. <laughs> right? Um, Denise's family never put out a missing persons or anything because they'd heard a rumor that Bob had owed somebody money, so they just assumed that they just took off. Right. New Hampshire authorities began to wonder if maybe Denise was a piece to a puzzle that had been haunting them for the last 30 years. Manchester is only 13 miles from Allenstown. Remember Allenstown? Oh, yeah. The unidentified bodies in the barrels in the woods? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Denise went missing in 1981, and a missing person's report was never filed. Could Bob Evans be the key to unlocking the 30-year-old mystery? Police looked into Bob's history, and he had worked for the Bear Brook store property dump site, which was where the original bodies had been found. And he worked as an electrician. Electrical wiring had been found in the barrels with the bodies. DNA revealed that the woman in the barrel was not Denise Bowden, which is disappointing because I totally Damn, like, I was so hoping. <laughs> but the unidentified youngest girl was, in fact, the daughter of Gordon Jensen. Jensen was, without a doubt, the same man known as Bob Evans, Larry Vanner. What was his other one? There's another one in there. Um, Kimball, something. Kimball, yeah. 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 So he's like multiple aliases. Curtis, Curtis Mayo Kimball. Right? The other one. Yeah. Yes. Curtis Mayo Kimball. Wow. He was the killer of the Allenstown Four, as well as likely Denise Bowden and, of course, Yunsen Jun. Now they just needed to find out who Vanner, Evans, Jensen, Kimball, whoever his face is, actually was. They put it out to the public, and Billy Jensen, along with a group of other citizen detectives, began tracking Bob Evans across the country and started filling in details. His MO was this. And it's gross. So full on warning. Um, he would meet a woman with a child and separate them from their family and friends. He would kill the woman and abduct the child and molest the child and then mm-hmm. play the part of the strug- loving, struggling father in an attempt to romance another woman. Then he would molest her children, kill the woman and the first child, take the new child and start his disgusting cycle over again. Uh, Billy started to- right? I hate him. Sorry. I, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. Oh. So much. Like, Ugh, that's disgusting. I know. I 
You know how I feel about tiny humans. Yeah. Um, Billy started a campaign in Texas and California looking for anyone who might remember Bob Evans, listing in great detail everything he knew about him. DNA was really what answered all of the questions, though. A son of his entered his DNA into a public database where authorities had entered Evans's DNA to see if they could find answers. And the two DNA samples collided, and it revealed that Bob Evans was really Terrence Terry Peter Rasmussen. He was a Navy veteran with four children whose wife left him after 1973. Billy was not done. He was now trying to piece together all potential victims of Terry Peter Rasmussen. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? It's just so much. That's like five cases combined into one case with all kinds of twists and turns. So it's just like I can, can hardly comprehend what I just know, happened. I, I was like writing it down and I was like, I don't, I don't even. <laughs> like, does this do make I, sense? <laughs> am, I, am I getting this all right? Like, and yeah, he's just basically tracking Terry across the country, seeing if any random bodies that don't have IDs or whatever are connected to him. Mm-hmm. And it's yep. like huge huge so huge crazy and i was listening to this on the audiobook and i was you know doing other things while i was doing it so i would get distracted and then i would have to i'd be like wait who are we talking about now who is this person because it was always different names so i had to keep going back listen to it again like oh they're all the same people i did that a few times because i kept distracting myself but i was like i really want to know know what is happening here because it's so interesting (laughs) right you should just see my notes in my notebook i'm like vanner like jensen (laughs) What? There's what? a whole bunch of red yarn and arrows yeah, everywhere. Like, <laughs> <laughs> They're all almost. connected. <laughs> almost. And that's what I feel like um, Billy Jensen's apartment looks like. Oh, like I feel great. like that's what it must look like because, yeah, it's just crazy. No kidding. There's just so, so much in this book. Um, Billy's work and dedication to his cause is incredible. He assisted in tracking down a fugitive on the run in Mexico by using his social media campaigns, as well as multiple other murder suspects, missing persons, and of course, his work in the Golden State Killer case is nothing short of amazing. There is so much more that I could talk about in this book, but I got to stop at some point. Um, Billy is still piecing together the Rasmussen mystery, and of course, has multiple social media campaigns on the go. The book ends with the capture of the Golden State Killer. But as you don't want to spoil the ending of another book we're going to be covering, all I want to say now is that he's caught and Billy Jensen was very invested in this case. And I had a note in my notebook when I was writing it that Billy almost seemed manic when the Golden State Killer was caught. Mm-hmm. Like he was just like so many things happened all at once. And then it was like Golden State Killer's caught and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to take over the world and here's my Superman cape and like – yeah. Oh, I related I to never, that completely. I never <laughs> again. And I was like, yeah. Like, yeah, been there. 100%. Yeah. There's a quote at the end, in the book that stuck with me, and I want to finish up with it. People read and watch and listen to true crime because it restores order from chaos. It's the comfort of watching everything be put into place after an episode of outright sickening bedlam. So there you have it. We aren't weird. We like finding peace in the chaos. I love that. When I heard it, actually, I wrote that quote in my phone and I forgot that I did that until this exact moment. But really, I was like, finally, somebody articulated what it means because other people try to explain what our fascination is and they just, they don't get it. No, like how many times have we tried to explain that we like to talk about creepy murder stuff and they look at us like we have two heads? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Constantly. 
So I really and we're known like as that. weird. So it's fine. Yeah. We're not. <laughs> not. There's so many more out there like us. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I like I said, I could have I could have talked for days about this whole book and mm-hmm. I recommend everybody reads it because it's so well done. Totally. Um, and not only well, not only is it extremely interesting and you get so involved with each case as well as Billy Jensen takes you through each and every step that he did in order to try to solve a case or what he did to promote on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. So you get really involved with each case, but then it's inspiring. It's like, man, I should be doing this. We all should be doing this. Why are we not doing this? And then I kind of feel guilty that I don't spend my time trying to solve these cases, but I think it just takes such an incredible and dedicated person to do that. So really have to be dedicated. Exactly. Procrastinators I, do not solve murders, Tara. Well, one day. <laughs> you'll see. One day. <laughs> you'll all see. <laughs> um, the other thing I was going to say is the whole Facebook, it really dove into like Facebook and how you can target certain groups of people. Like you can get very detailed with that. And it was very creepy, actually. <laughs> I was oh, like, yeah. yeah. Like, it's like, I know that there's a footprint on the internet and you know, I would be able to be tracked and all that kind of stuff, but to the extent that you can track somebody or find out information about somebody is terrifying. I know. I think he said that he was boosting his first one, like the man in the green hoodie. And it was like, well, I'm going to pick like ages 18 to 65 and I'm going to do this neighborhood. And hey, I could even pick if you like the New England Patriots or you like Martha Stewart. Totally. Right? Like, so specific. You- they drive a Dodge truck. So I'm going to target people with Dodge trucks. Like, yeah. So, so specific. Yeah. I'm already a very paranoid person. So that really didn't help. <laughs> no, didn't make you feel better. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, oh no. What do people know about me? There's nothing and interesting then to know. <laughs> the, at the very end of the book, he's got a whole like section. It's like, so you want to help solve a murder? And it's yeah. like the step by step, how to do what he does. Like, so cool. Yeah. It's like, this is what you need to do and you need to do this right. You can't go into it not following these rules. This is how it has to be done. And it's, and it's really to, incredible. Yeah. yeah. And you have to go in expecting to not get any praise or yeah. any reward or anything. Or any, yeah, any cooperation from police or anything like that. It's not going to be an easy ride. No. And you have to be the squeaky wheel. Like you have to keep calling and calling and calling. Like I said, he's the green hoodie case he called or emailed the detectives at the Chicago Police Department at least once a week for nine months mm-hmm. yeah right exactly. like you have to be persistent you have to be the person that doesn't go away yeah so that's why I say it takes a special kind of person to do the kind of stuff that he does yes and I think he's really incredible yeah and if yeah. this book can inspire like one other person to do the same kind of stuff that he does then that's fantastic because we right? need more and- Billy Jensen's out there. <laughs> exactly. And his, he's got lots of thoughts about the DNA databases and, mm, you know. Yes. Like Very interesting. Ancestry.com and what is it? Uh, 23andMe, I believe. 23andMe, yeah. Yeah. And um, about how we could solve a lot of unsolved by yeah. using the public DNA databases, which is a really cool thought. So interesting. But yeah. yeah, and then again, you get into people's privacy. privacy. Yeah. Privacy and issues. A little, a little difficult, but totally. And I'm so on the fence about that because obviously I want these cases to be solved, and that would be incredible if we could use that information from those databases 
for that. But then on the other time, I'm such a paranoid person that I'm like, I want my information to be private. You know, I don't know what people are going to do with that information and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's a really difficult situation. I know. I feel the same way. And like, can you imagine like being Terry Rasmussen's son and just put your information in like whatever, 23 (laughs) or whatever it was. And you're like, oh, hey, that's cool. Oh, wow. Real killer. Great. Awesome. That's That's nice. Yeah. I mean, it would be a pretty interesting deep dive. I don't know. (laughs) That's crazy. Can't imagine. Somebody else would have to pay for my therapy bills, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Cool. So, well, let's end on a little bit of a lighter note. Sure. As usual, today's question, this is the simple one. What's your favorite podcast? Besides ours, of course. I don't know. I haven't even thought about this question. <laughs> I have so many favorite podcasts that I, I, I have no idea. Of course, there's my favorite murder, which I love. I love the Jen and Julian podcast. That's Jenna Marbles and Julian Salamita. And they're just so sweet. And they just talk. And today I listened to their one and they talked about the Tiger King. So I just oh, made me really happy. <laughs> and they just, they just sit there and chat. And it just is, I just love them so much. So they're great. I love Morbid. I could go on for ages. I'm sorry. I can't pick one. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. And it will change like weekly. I'll have a different favorite podcast. So (laughs) yeah. What about you? Uh, Well, Dark Poutine. Dark um, Poutine is great. So good. It's all about Canadian true crime and the dark side of Canadian history. And I love it so much. And I find just how they cover the content just awesome. And they're, yeah. They're on another level that we're not even close to. They're so professional and articulate and funny and just, there are so many layers to them. They're funny, but they're respectful. They're just, they do so much research. I just, yeah, they're great. I I really like respect them and dig them. And of course my other one is, is morbid, which I've talked about before. I love them. I feel like you're the Ash, my Elena, and whatever. (laughs) I think we love them so much because we relate to them so much. Like we listen to them and it just feels like a conversation that we would have. So we're like, that's why we're like, we can do this. We can get into this. We can have our own podcast. So they were totally a reason why we were like, we could do this. Yes. Yeah. And I appreciate them. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. They're great. And I want to, we want to know what uh, everybody else's favorite podcasts are. What are you guys listening to? Give us some suggestions. We're always, always loving the suggestions. So. Always looking um, for new podcasts. Yeah. yeah. You can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at murderandmerlotpodcast, Facebook at murderandmerlotpodcast, and Twitter at murderandmerlot1. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. <laughs> um. Are we announcing our next book? I think we should, yeah. I don't have the author in front of me. I, I have it. I get it. You so, got it? You want to do the it. announcement? Okay. Sure. Our next book is If You Tell by Greg Olson. Go find If You Tell. Read it. Yeah. Well, we got it off of Amazon, and then I also found it on Audible, so you can listen or you can read. And I don't know what to expect from this book at all but I chose yeah. it and I want to know all about it so you should too yeah. yeah me too I'm excited I'm excited too
it'll be a fun adventure. I think it'll I be up in the mail today. So I'm like really excited because I've been missing a book. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get mine for a long time. But then after you told me you got yours today, I got an email like right after that. And it was like, it'll be here on Friday. So yes, we'll be good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All is good. All right. Well, well, see you next Thursday. See you next Thursday. Bye. Bye.